We're going to start um, going through chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's on covenant theology. Um, when we talk about covenant theology, it's very easy if you have a more uh, nerdy disposition like I do to open up can of worms and just go swimming in all the different theories and the way we think about it, all the different uh, implications. And then at the same time, talking about covenant theology can also be confusing because when we say you know, like new covenant, when, what, which one, what new? If we say the covenant of Abraham and Moses, what are we talking about? It can very easily uh, get confusing. Uh, what I love about the Westminster Confession of Faith is it's actually very simple in some ways. There are some things it says that are true for all evangelicals, but then it actually says some things that's very distinct for Reformed theology. And so today we're going to look at those things that are broadly evangelical, but when we look at the chapter, they're making some pretty uh, bold distinctives for the Reformed tradition for God and man. And I grew up in an uh, Arminian Baptist home, and then I kind of became more Calvinistic Baptist, and now I'm more Reformed Presbyterian. And if there's one thing that uh, does not unify all those things, it is our understanding of the covenant. Um, I grew up in a more dispensational church, um, so when they talked about uh, how people were saved in the Old Testament, it was kind of just a question mark. It was more of a there were different eras, epochs, ages, and how God worked. And then when I became more Calvinistic Baptist, they loved to say salvation's always by grace through faith. And then when they talked about how that worked in the Old Testament, we're kind of back to that question mark. <laughs> it was there, but not there. Uh, I went to a Baptist seminary, and I had a professor for Old Testament say that Moses was always just telling the people wait. Salvation will be here eventually, but it wasn't there then. And it just started to mull over my head that this is not consistent with what I'm reading in Scripture. It wasn't consistent with the people I was, the theologians I was reading. And so when I found covenant theology, it was a huge relief and there are many, many implications that comes with the Reformed understanding of covenant theology. But in the confession, in this particular chapter, they actually don't talk about all the implications that will come later. Here, they talk about the very essence of a covenant and the essence of covenant theology. So let's start with section one. The Confession of Faith says... The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary concession on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of of covenant. So if I were to ask um, many of my Baptist friends that I, I grew up with and went to school with, what's, what is covenant theology all about? The first thing they say is, well, it's us understanding the connection between Old and New Testament. 
It's our understanding of how salvation arcs over all of history. But here in the confession of faith, they actually start a little bit different. They don't start by talking about the connection points between the old and new. They start by talking about the very nature of man's relationship to God. So before we talk about, okay, how does, how does salvation continue? Are, are there differences? Confession of faith and divines, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before we get there, who are you? Who, who are you? Who made you? God. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what they're asking. <laughs> so the first thing they say, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures owe obedience by the very nature of the fact that they're created. So what they're saying is at the beginning, when God created Adam, by the very fact that he's a creature, he already owes obedience. Before covenant with Adam's even instituted, what they're saying is by the fact that you're a creature, obedience is already owed. And if God had looked at Adam and simply given him the warnings of if you disobey, there will be penalties, there will be curses. That would have been logically, logically right within the nature of creature and creator. But that's not the God we serve. We serve a God who doesn't just lord over his creation as a, a ruler with a mighty fist and angry. But we have a God who actually stooped down to Adam and says, if Adam actually, if he had just obeyed without a covenant, how would he have known there would have been a blessed reward? And this is where God, the Westminster Confession says, yet they could have never had fruition of God as a reward and blessedness unless by some voluntary condescension on God's part. Now, this doesn't mean he was condescending, as in being uh, mean or kind of a jerk. But um, when my children, when my firstborn came around, became a toddler, she was very astute, a um, watcher of people. And when we corrected her, she was very, made eye contact and she heard that my secondborn was more like me. She came around and she um, just kind of ran headfirst into everything. She stumbles over things. She's going to learn things probably more uh, the hard way. And so when we try to correct her and talk to her, she would just keep going. So I have to get on one knee. I have to bend down. I have to grab her hands, look her in the eye, and then she kind of just slowly looks up at me. And then I can start talking and correcting. This is me stooping down. This is me coming to her. 
I'm not just lording over and yelling commands and then she does something wrong. Well, you get, you get it. Here's the punishment. No, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to her level. I'm condescending, grabbing the hands, and then telling her about the rewards and the punishments that are with obedience and disobedience. When God came to Adam and instituted a covenant I think too often we, we just kind of roll that off our tongues without understanding that the Lord God Almighty stooped down to a creature in dust and said, I have life everlasting in me. And I want to give it to you. I, I want you to receive the rewards that are mine and I want to bring you in to this relationship. So when the confession of faith talks about covenant theology, they first say, isn't this marvelous? Isn't isn't this wonderful? Is, Is it amazing that God would actually stoop down to creatures who already owe obedience and say, we're gonna make a covenant that's personal and blessed rewards I, I delight to give you. But there's conditions to this covenant. There are. And how we relate. And I'm, I'm going to set it up. I'm going to make it. And I'm offering to, unto you myself. That's what God is saying. And he hath been pleased to express this. Right? This, this relationship, this stooping down, this expression is a way of covenant. And then in section two, this is when we start to talk about the different kinds of covenants and how this works. But we should not lose this in the back of our mind that this is the Almighty coming down to humans, establishing personal relationship. And it says the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So the first covenant made with man, so we have here, So we have creation. In the beginning, God looks at Adam as a head to this covenant. And he's making a covenant with human beings, the image bearers, and sees Adam as the head of this covenant. So that's why it says to him and his posterity that are in him. This is referring back to Romans 5, when we talk about being in Christ and in Adam, and that the curse has now been sent down to all those who are naturally in Adam. But why is that? Why is the condemnation coming down from generation to generation to generation 
And the confession says, because at the beginning, when God created and established this covenant, it was to Adam the head. And the conditions, and what's hard is we use the phrase works, and that's kind of a loaded phrase. He looks at Adam and says, obey me and live. Life everlasting was not naturally in Adam. He was innocent, but this everlasting, beautiful, blessed life was in God. And says, I, I want you to obey me and live, that there is a blessedness here. And it's, it's easy to think of this covenant of works in a wrong way. He is not looking at Adam and saying, all right, I've made you. Now, like Hercules, I want you to go out, prove yourself, and amass righteousness. I, I want you to uh, do amazing feats, prove to me that you are this amazing righteous man, and then I'm, I'm kind of bound to exchange your righteousness in for my life, right? It's almost similar to our Catholic friends who build a treasury, right, of righteousness to where theoretically Adam might have come up to God and said, well, I've actually done more than you've asked, so I actually have more righteousness you need to deal with. And God's just, oh, no, <laughs> I have to... I have to really over-reward him, and God's now bound to Adam. That's not what is meant by covenant of works. What is meant is that where life was promised to Adam upon a condition of perfect and personal obedience— It is not Adam amassing his own righteousness and then forcing God to exchange it for life. But Adam has a covenant bounds. I've given you my word. Obey it. Personal obedience in view of life as his blessed reward. And this is what we call covenant of works, or in the uh, catechisms, they call it the covenant of life. And uh, many people will uh, theorize by saying, if Adam had truly been obedient to this and received the reward, his posterity would have also. And the reason we do that is because we're actually looking in view to Christ in the same way that covenant works of being in Jesus. But before we get there, let's look at the third part. We all, we know that when Adam was given this covenant, he was commanded to tend the land, spread out the garden, and to not eat of a particular tree. He was given confinements, and he sinned. He disobeyed the covenant. He became a covenant breaker. 
and disobeyed God. And it says in the third section, man by his fall made himself incapable of life by that covenant. He didn't break the covenant and God just go, ah, don't worry about it, Adam. Let's, let's get back into that same covenant. Let's, let's, let's go back to the same thing. Let's start over with the same exact covenant of works and let's, let's try again. But what they're saying is the moment he broke that covenant, he was under the condemnation of that covenant and no longer capable of the blessed reward of that covenant. He himself would now be a man under condemnation, under the wrath by the very nature of being a covenant breaker. And then it goes on, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. So we have creation, and it's under this covenant of works. And at the fall, we, we don't go back into this thing, uh, back into this covenant by which we, in our birth, God looks at us and says, all right, perfect obedience, and then life. Okay, now my child comes, perfect obedience, and then life, and then my next child comes, perfect obedience, and then life. And then with that first sin, oh, now you're a covenant, now you're a covenant breaker, now you're... No, once my children were conceived, they were conceived here, under condemnation already. Because we are born naturally in our head, the breaker. So we're already born here, but God was pleased in his mercy to start a new covenant of grace. Right at this point of the fall, he comes to Adam, who's hiding in darkness, in his shame. Eve, hiding in darkness in her shame. And God, Adam, Adam, hiding, hiding, Adam, and calls him out of darkness, tells him of the, the, the penalties that are really there, temporally, here on earth, right? This, this earthly temporal line, there, there, there's going to be penalties. But Adam, I'm going to give you a promise of a new covenant that I'm establishing with you. And it's called the covenant of grace whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation. Life and redemption. First covenant, life. Covenant of grace. We're going to need more. You need to be redeemed unto life. 
life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all of those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. There is a lot here that would probably take the whole hour to do all of it, but I'm trying to give a uh, brief understanding. In the Reformed tradition, when we look at this temporal, earthly history of the earth, we say the covenant of works is over this section. And the covenant of grace stands over all of history until his return. Here, we have the cross of Christ. And growing up in a, a Baptist way of life, they, they would commonly say, well, this is when the covenant of grace really begins, right, right here. We, we, we need the consummation first, and then grace begins. And then I uh, lived in a dispensational type home for a while. They would actually do like seven little epochs, errors in history and in an atemporal sense of, well, we're saved this way during this time, we're saved this way during this time, saved this way during this time. And the tradition of the reformers is that no, 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 no. The moment God came to Adam and proclaimed the promise of redemption, he did not simply say, hey, Adam, in 2023, these people will really have the promise. I just, I just want to talk about it now so they can talk about it in an allegorical way in 2023. What he's actually saying is, I'm bringing you into this now. Calls them out of darkness. And then think about Adam and Eve knowing they deserve death, standing before their creator, knowing they're covenant breakers, waiting to receive death. And then they look over and God's brought an innocent animal. Wait, 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 why, is this, why is this animal here? And then God kills it. Oh, why, why are you? No, 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 that was, that was me, God. I, I, I I was, I was the one that broke the covenant. Why is this animal, why are you, are you skinning it? Why are, why are you skinning this animal? Oh, and then he puts the animal skin on them. Can't you just see Adam and Eve touching it? Clothing their shame? Clothing their sin? Reconciling them to God and each other? I mean, this is Ephesians 2. By the blood, the enmity has been done away with, and you've been brought near to him and each other. And Adam and Eve, just rubbing the skin. And then God says, yeah, but that's not really for 
you. No. In the Reformed tradition, we say he not only proclaimed the covenant of grace on that day, he administered it. The weight of the truth was brought to their hearts. They were actually brought out of darkness and reconciled. And the covenant of grace in a atemporal, outside of time, really began here and will continue all the way until his return on the final consummation. But that leads to some questions. <laughs> that leads to, how does that work? How does that work? I thought there was this uh, Noahic covenant, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, Davidic covenant. Well, I thought those, aren't we in the new, 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 new covenant? Like, which, which new, how new? Like, and all the questions begin to unfold. And before we get there, I don't want to f- miss this part. In the young, restless, reformed kind of movement, um, some of my friends within the covenant theology camp, they would be happy to say the covenant of works had conditions and requirements, but the covenant of grace doesn't. That's what makes it a covenant of grace. There's, there's no more requirements. There's, there's, there's no more conditions. And then if you get around some Reformed friends, and if I'm bold enough to say, no, there are requirements and conditions, they would quickly go, we're not really Calvinistic. You can't say God is sovereign and there are conditions and requirements. But the confession of faith does not see covenant theology in the sweet, sovereign, saving work of God at odds. In the covenant of grace, there is a requirement, friends. There is. It's no longer a requirement that you yourself personally and perfectly obey. But you have a requirement of faith in Christ who did perfectly and personally obey all of the law for you. And before, before you get too nervous, this requirement is given unto all of those who are ordained by life. So we are required to really have faith in him. You, you cannot just simply be under the covenant of grace and have no real, tangible, rooted faith in Jesus. If you are in the covenant of grace and you, you walk and you fall away, you turn away from grace, you trample upon the blood, then my friends, salvation is set before you but took no root in you. But the glorious good God accomplishes all those requirements on your behalf. Not only does he set forth Jesus 
to be the one who would receive our punishment, but he set forth Jesus to be the one who would obey for you perfectly. And then the Spirit comes and applies that to you and creates in you that root of faith and sustains that root of faith all the way to the end. So there really is a requirement. We, we shouldn't say, well, covenant of grace, there's no requirement, but we should very quickly in the same breath go and praise God that he, in his love, fulfilled that for me and grants it to me in my union with Christ. And that's what makes me a creature of dust, naturally under the condemnation willing to believe, able to believe. And this is how everyone prior to the cross and after the fall, it is true for them. When we read in Hebrews about the chapter of 11, the hall of fame, faithful men and women of the Old Testament, this is how they came to faith. The Holy Spirit enabling to make them able and willing. Praise God. Which naturally comes up with questions. <laughs> more and more questions. Number four. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of a testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Now, when we say testament, we naturally think of a, um, someone who lived a really bad life, gets up and gives a testimony about all that God has done and sharing a personal experience about their life. That's, that's not what is being said here. But think of your last will and testament. It is something in reference to the death of Jesus Christ. He is the testator. He is the one who has the blessed reward in him. And this testament is setting forth by his death, we receive his inheritance. So when, when Christ came and lived his earthly ministry, now, this is not going to be accurate by size, so I am very sorry. It looks like his earthly ministry is really long. So during his earthly ministry, what was he doing? He was fulfilling the covenant of works for all those who will receive his inheritance. So he didn't come and God just kind of go, well, go and, and die. You know, all they really need is a forgiveness of sins. But that's, that's not bringing us 
back to the blessed reward of living an everlasting life with God. Yet Christ came as a second Adam. This is why in Corinthians, he's the second and true Adam who came to fulfill all the obedience so he could give it, impute it, impart it as an inheritance to all those who have been ordained to life. And my friends, this is still true for everyone to the left of the cross. They did not receive inheritance of bulls that were slain. They didn't receive the inheritance of goats that were cast out. That's not how their sins were forgiven, nor is that how their inheritance was given. No one wants the inheritance of a bull. No. The true Adam came. And this is why it's set forth as a testament on both sides of the cross. But, and number five, it was differently administered. And this is where the confusion and the can of worms can really be opened. It was differently administered during this time than it's administered during this time. So when you say covenant, you could be referring to a earthly, temporal covenant of Moses. Or if you say covenant, you could be talking about the atemporal, outside-of-time covenant of grace. And that's why conversations about covenant theology can very easily get confusing, and we could be saying the same thing and yet arguing. So he's saying this covenant of grace during the time to the left of the cross was administered uh, different in the law on the left and the gospel on the right. Under the time of the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, here's a good word, other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews for signifying Christ to come. Now, at the seminary I went to, they would agree with this on surface level. For signifying what I was taught was it, it, all these covenants, right? So a Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, these were, these were pointing to the cross of when grace would be given. And, and these people, they didn't experience it. It was Some professors would say they kind of did, kind of didn't, but when they say foresignifying, they're just foresignifying to the tangibleness of the cross. That's not wrong. <laughs> it's not the full beauty of what the Westminster Confession of Faith is saying. The traditional view within the Reformed theology really comes down to these words right here, types and ordinances. So when they use the word like types or symbols, 
when they would gather for um, feasts, when they would have the Passover feast, and they would, they, would, they would fast for a week getting prepared, they would come together. It was a public gathering. They, they would slay one animal, and the blood would be spilt out, and they would all be there. They would lay their hands on another one to talk about the sins of the people being put on him and cast him out where everyone could see. They would, they would take the blood and smear it over the doors where all could see. They would come together and they would eat and rejoice in remembrance of what God had done delivering them out of Egypt. And some will say, isn't that pretty? We, we today see Jesus. Isn't that pretty? But those poor people, it, it did nothing. They still had to fulfill the law to be saved. They still had to be saved through some works-based righteousness. Those poor people, they, they had all these things, but it did nothing. But that's not what we believe. And the confession of faith, it says, as they were observing those things, the Holy Spirit administered the truthfulness of them. As they saw the blood being spilled, a knife going across, they would be jarred by the Holy Spirit. That, that should be me. As they see a, a lamb cast out from the camp, that should be me. What, who, who is this that they're doing this to? When the blood is over the doors, why, why is my home being passed over because of this blood? And inwardly, the Holy Spirit uses those things to grant faith. This is what I need. I need God to account another sinful on my behalf. I, I need his judgment to pass over me. I need this. And the Holy Spirit would make that true and would strengthen that faith. And this is what is meant by typology. These, these types did something in the people. When we gather and take the Lord's table, we're not just doing something because it's been done for a long time. God has promised to use it for his people through the Holy Spirit, work in them. When we preach, or when Dennis is preaching, we sit there, why, why does the Holy Spirit take that and move in the people? It's an ordinance he has promised to use for your salvation. And though it looked differently, what, we're, what the confession of faith is saying, it looked different, but in its essence, it's not that different. We today still need the Holy Spirit to move and work in us so that the faith in which he works in us would grow and be real. which were for that time sufficient and efficacious. That word efficacious is what I'm talking about. He accomplished it. He really administered the covenant of grace, though it looked different through the administrations. And this was through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up 
the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they all had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. And this time period is called the Old Testament. So God gathered all of Israel, and it's a wonder. There's many times he just looks at all of Israel. You are my people. Moses goes to Pharaoh, let them go. Pharaoh says, take the men. No. The men, the women, the children. We are all to go. And he looks at all the people and gives them these blessed ordinances and types. But in the mystery of the pleasure of God, it is sufficient and efficient within only those who are spiritually elect and ordained unto life. And this should be humbling and fearful that he looks at all the people and gives them these blessed means for their salvation And yet it's the Holy Spirit that effects it in the elect. And then uh, the final one, number six. So now in the time of the gospel, after these administrations had come, now we're talking about here over. In the time under the gospel when Christ the substance was exhibited. The ordinances which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and outward glory. We, we don't cut the neck of an animal every, every week. We don't, we don't actually smear the blood all around the sanctuary every week. It's, uh, it's, it's not as jarring and dramatic. It's more simple in the outward observing. So it's less glorious in that way. But in them, it is held forth in more fullness. Evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not therefore two covenants of grace, Let's see if I can do that, differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. When we talk about the covenant of grace, we need to understand in one sense, it's a spiritual aspect of it. The covenant of grace by which the sovereign Lord is saving his elect. But there's also a tangible aspect to it. We tangibly are the people of God. We we tangibly are those baptized into his death. There's a real earthy sense to this covenant. And so, during this time, there were these administers, like Moses, and the, uh, the priests who came were earthly ways 
God administered the glory and beauty of this covenant that overarchs. And so like in Hebrews, when it talks about the more fullness of the better and new covenant, he's not saying these poor people who did not have Jesus. But he is saying something is new when the real substance himself tangibly and earthly comes. And no more are these weak administers, these sinful administers, really used to point to the head. They really were used to point to Christ. But now he himself has tangibly come, not to finally give grace, but to consummate it and to be our real tangible priest, our real tangible mediator. I think we forget we have a tangible mediator. He really is pierced. He really does have holes in his hands. He really truly is before the throne of God as our priest, as our mediator. And this is what is meant by the true substance was exhibited. It's not a different second covenant of grace, but we now have the true substance of it, not different covenant. But he has come. And this is why when we administer the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, it is no longer circumcision. Looking forward in a bloody way to the bloody cross, we now receive baptism. It's no longer Passover lamb and feasts and festivals. No, we have the Lord's Supper. And there's no more prophecies. There's no more of these prophetic promises in the same sense as it was in the old. We have the preaching of the word. And these administered for our soul. And this is why it's in the full fullness. And when it comes to the evidence, I believe they're talking about the fact that we have the privilege of looking back and putting together all the evidential sources throughout the history of his redemption. And we can see it more clearly. And when this is the one that makes people, I think, the most interesting with my Baptist friends, they believe that once this happened and Christ came, covenant membership is now only atemporal. No one's in the covenant of grace until after regeneration. That there is no more a tangible sense of being in the covenant of grace. You're not in it until you're up here. And this efficacy, they say, would be it's only after regeneration and you profess faith, then we can know with betterness that you're actually in the covenant, while the Reformed tradition doesn't break that off, that there are still tangible people under the covenant of grace looking towards the spiritual efficacy by which they're really 
saved in Christ. And in this way, this is why it's called the New Testament, because the testator himself has come. Now, that was a very quick run-through. I tried my best to leave about a few minutes. So there are about 10 more minutes. That was a very overarching. I know I didn't use any scripture. I'm very sorry. When I did, it was like two hours. We don't, we don't have time for that. I wish we did. But that is an overview, and I'm, if anyone has questions, I would love to try to answer them. Yeah, you're hitting on a topic that is really um, weighty and hard to talk about, because what you're saying is people are in a covenant relationship with God while not receiving the blessed reward of that that covenant. So when Scripture talks about this, he talks about in Romans 9, not all Israel is Israel. Now, what he's not saying is that only some of them were in covenant relationship with me. But there is a mysterious working by which you can be and are in a covenant relationship, covenantly bound, but the rewards, the blessings, the root of the matter hasn't taken you through the covenant giver. And that is mysterious, and I think we should tremble at the fact that we try to always flush that out in time. God has decreed when those who are in covenant show themselves to not truly be, have the root of the matter, but until that time of uh, revealing it, I think Scripture teaches us to treat everyone who's in covenant as if the root of the matter is really there. We, we should treat them and grow them up and discipline and the preaching of the word. And it gets hard to know when do I treat someone as covenant breaker or a backslider, someone who's trampled on the blood, someone who's actually just, or just in sin and needs help and repentance. It does get hard. Um, so my, my best answer is when we take the advice of Scripture, Paul himself in all his letters uh, addresses all the church as the elect, the called, the bride. A couple chapters later, we need to kick this person out. We, we need to deal with this person. But he's addressing in a, a more corporate way people of the covenant. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I do. So if, if there's a, a oneness in the essence, but different in just administrations, then why is there such a prolonged time before Christ really came in substance? Why, why are there differences? Why are there distinctions? Why, why so long? Is that kind of a question? Yeah, thank you. It's much more. It's much more clear. So the reason this time period could actually be effectual 
is because in time, in, in history, he really did consummate it. He really did receive the weight of our sin and really did fulfill the covenant. So anytime a type or ordinance is effectual during this period, it's because this actually did happen. So if he never really did this, this has no grounding. This, this has no real substance. It's not pointing to him. It's just pointing. It's not actually working, looking forward to who would do it. So there actually needs to be an in time, real person, and a moment by which this is consummated for both sides of the aisle to have weight because the founding really did happen. But we have reached our end, so I'm going to pray for us, and if you have any more questions, I'll be here. <clears throat> uh, Father, we, uh, we thank you that we are not still in Adam, that for all those who are in the covenant of grace, for all those who have truly been united to Christ, we're in him. We really are in him, and he is our Redeemer. And today, when we gather and we worship, Father, when the, the law is set before us um, at worship, may it effectually work. May it point us to the glories of Christ. When the, the prayer of forgiveness is sat over us, may it effectually be brought to us through the work of the Spirit and rest. And no, we, we really are the redeemed as we sing songs as we receive the preaching of the word, may the Holy Spirit build up and instruct the elect. And Father, as we take your table, oh, may it be sweet to us. May it nurture us and strengthen us by the Spirit who does all this work so that we may worship you well today and for the rest of the week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.